Hello, everyone. I think we're ready to start again. I have the pleasure to introduce to you today uh, Jody Edwards. Um, he, his ed educational background um, started at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where he got his BS in agronomy. Um, that was followed by an MS in agronomy from Madison, um, and a PhD at Iowa State, where he works today um, for the USDA ARS. Um, his main interests um, include uh, adaptation of high plants, plant density and quantitative genetics of inbreeding. Um, just before we start today, I wanted to ask you all to fill out your survey within your um, pamphlet today. Um, there's more out, outside. Um, it, when you fill it out, there's a box that says survey on it. You can just place it in there. There's also pens out there if you need them. But um, thank you, um, and let, uh, let's give a warm welcome to Jody Edwards. Thank you. Well, thank you for the very kind introduction, and thank you to the sponsors uh, and the organizers for inviting me today. Um, when I first got the invitation, uh, there was mention in the invitation about next-gen sequencing and genomic selection, and I said, well, I don't have a lot going on in those areas right now. What would you like me to talk about? And they said, well, submit a title, whatever you'd like. So I'd like to thank the organizers for not retracting the invitation after they got the title. Uh, I think that Dr. Benziger, though, gave a really good lead-in to why I'm giving this seminar with the quote by T.S. Eliot that... Uh, a good past is positively dangerous if it makes us content with the present. And so we've been doing recurrent selection in Ames uh, for 80 years. And as Dr. Benziger uh, pointed out, we have a really good track record with phenotypic selection. So we have all these public resources. And I guess the question that I'm posing today, and I hope I provide some answers, is have we really learned anything from recurrent selection in the public sector. And we have lots of examples in maize. Now, I don't need to talk about recurrent selection to tell you that selection works. Plant breeders know that. And in fact, uh, Jim Coors summarized 128 recurrent selection programs in maize for, uh, with, with grain yield as a primary trait of selection. If we take the uh, number of studies in the first column and multiply by the average number of cycles and add everything up, there are over a thousand cycles of recurrent selection here. And I, I, I think the reason I'm giving this seminar is I think this ought to be a resource to learn something from the past about how to move forward more quickly in the future. Um, and if we look over there, bushels per acre per year in these programs, a little over one bushel per year, except at the bottom where we have inbred progeny selection, where we've measured indirect response. And that's selecting on the basis of inbred line performance and measuring response on the performance of the panmictic population. And there we see about half the response. In other words, inbred line selection in corn doesn't really work. Uh, and of course, in the, on the basis of uh, commercial germplasm, Duvik has uh, spearheaded, uh, among others, the effort to look at era hybrids, to pick out hybrids representing different eras. And once again, we get a little over one bushel per year response. And uh, back to the theme that we've heard this morning on G by E, it also depends on what environment that we evaluate 
those responses uh, in a good environment, we get a little more response than a bad environment. And so the work of uh, public maize breeding programs and private maize breeding programs has contributed something to this, and that is the increase over time in uh, the average U.S. maize yield. Uh, and I did a quick regression on this uh, over the hybrid corn era and came up with about two bushels per year. So environment also, uh, improved environment and management has probably contributed something, though I don't want to get into exactly what proportion that is because it doesn't really, for our purpose, it doesn't matter. It's important. So then why study recurrent selection? Um, so for those of us who are geneticists in the public sector, uh, the main reason, other than the fact that I have all these uh, populations across the hall in the seed cooler room and, and so they're available for study, but these are uh, publicly available resources and in many cases we have a great deal uh, of records on these. We have the founders, we have individual cycles as individual population units and to me that's an advantage over the era hybrid studies because I have discrete generations and each cycle of selection is a discrete unit or a discrete entry a treatment in an experiment. And uh, for some of these programs, we have the individual lines that were selected in individual uh, cycles for recombination, the selections. So there are a couple of lessons I want, want to go through on in a particular set of recurrent selection programs today. And one of the running themes uh, in corn is that yield is different. And yield just seems to be a lot more complex and a lot more difficult to work with than any other trait. Dr. Benziker talked about uh, looking at grain yield in wheat and breaking it down to some of its components. And I think that uh, in the public sector, particularly the work that we've done with these reoccurrent selection programs, I think we need to do a lot more of that. And I think there's something to be learned. So lesson one, we selected for high grain yield and what we really got was improved adaptation to high plant density. Um, and I think a lot of corn breeders know that, and, uh, and I'll show you a specific example in the stiff stock synthetic that that's very clear. Lesson two, uh, selection for grain yield produces a response for grain yield per se, and I, I mean grain yield itself and not the response to plant density, only at the same level of inbreeding as selection candidates are evaluated. And I think this is something that intuitively corn breeders know but it turns out that quantitative genetic theory hasn't caught up to corn breeders until just a few years ago, and we actually have quantitative genetic models that would actually predict this result, finally. Um, and a couple of the folks that helped contribute to that work are sitting in the audience today. So my lab rat, if you will, is the Iowa Stiffstock Synthetic, and this is a rough pedigree of this uh, population. We start, started with 16 inbred founders that were intermated in 1933, and we're still doing selection. And we now have about 18 cycles of reciprocal selection with the corn borer population as the, the tester. We have seven cycles completed uh, with Iowa 13 double cross as tester to form the HTC7 population uh, right here. I guess the pointer doesn't show up very well. Well, that I'll have to speak clearly about what's on the slides then. <laughs> Um, well, that, that's better. I don't know if it'll help the webinar, folks. The, uh, the BSSS HTC7 population was then split into two 
programs. One uh, test cross selection with the inbred line B97 as a tester, and one in which we did 12 cycles now of inbred progeny selection. And the significance of this population largely has to do with the fact that three inbred lines came out of here, B14, B37, and B73, that formed the basis of the stiff stock heterotic group, which is important in commercial corn breeding. Uh, and a very large number of hybrids today have uh, at least one parent that traces something back to either the stiff stock population or one of these three inbred lines. And this... Uh, the recurrent selection programs in this program have been going on a long time, and the traits under selection are those traits that are really important in production agriculture. And we have some different selection methods in this program that have provided some very different insights into the genetics and physiology of selection. And we have lots of thesis projects with lots of data that I can draw upon. So as I said, selection works. Uh, we know that. And uh, I also said that I think that what we really got by selecting for grain yield was uh, better adaptation to high plant density. So this is the grain yield of the cycle 0 and cycle 17 population crosses in stiff stock by corn borer from the reciprocal program. And at low density, we don't see very much improvement. Uh, density in plants per meter squared is on the x-axis. But at high density, we see a, a pretty impressive improvement in, in grain yield. And what that's uh, just a, a snapshot of um, what's really going on in these programs is by selecting for grain yield, what we got was adaptation to high plant density. So the question often arises, well, what plant densities were used in the selection trials? Well, I went back through all the records and I dug out the average final stands based on stand counts in the field and individual cycles of selection and summarized them across cycles. And in general, in many cycles, the, uh, the optimal, the densities used in selection trials were actually below optimal densities. The optimal density in cycle zero of the population cross was around uh, five to six plants per meter squared. And if you look at the first several cycles of selection, even in the reciprocal, the observed final density was less than four plants per meter. Now, the other component we don't know is we don't know what the rest of the environment was like and whether the density response in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s was different than the density responses observed today. I had some goofy data I couldn't understand one time, and uh, there was a density response in one environment that didn't fit the rest, and when I uh, figured out which environment that was and looked at my notes, guess what? That was a weedy environment. And under increased weed pressure, the density response was shifted to the left. The, the environment behaved like it was at a higher density than it really was. So again, this G by E thing keeps coming back. Now, uh, let's see. There we go. So on this uh, slide, I'm showing a bunch more of the population crosses. And I think the most noteworthy lines on here are the top two dotted lines, which are stiff stock. Uh, reciprocal cycle 17 cross to corn borer cycle 17 and to the inbred line B97. And they are by far the best adapted to high plant density compared to anything else on this slide. Most of the lines, the curves near the bottom, are all crosses to cycle zero in one of the, the two programs. So this is population crosses. I'd also like to point out, though, that the advanced cycles are higher yielding at all densities, even, even though um, 
those advanced cycles really do well at high density. They're still higher yielding at all plant densities. Now, if we look at populations per se, the story gets a little more complicated. And if we grow the populations per se, so, so in, in corn, we're used to evaluating selection for test cross selection on the base of test cross performance. What we see in the populations per se at high plant density is that the, the most advanced cycles are the highest yielding. But if we look at low plant density, we see that some of those advanced cycles are actually much lower yielding at low plant density than the, the cycle zero. Well, um, that's part of the complexity of grain yield that I alluded to. And I'll say more about that later. I'll show this slide again. Um, so Dr. Benziger also mentioned heterosis this morning. And as, as I mentioned earlier, I think that by selecting for grain yield, we really got adaptation to high plant density. But if we look at heterosis and adaptation to high plant density, I would argue that heterosis really contributes almost nothing to adaptation to high plant density. If we look at heterosis of these population crosses versus plant density, heterosis is basically flat. We've got about the same amount of heterosis across plant densities. And I think this is kind of uh, an important observation uh, from a standpoint of being able to separate heterosis uh, on one hand in maize breeding and, and dealing with inbreeding depression and vigor um, on the other hand. So what is adaptation to high plant density about? Well, it's about the underlying physiological phenotypes and processes that make plants adapted to high plant density. And the cycle zero of stiff stock is shown on the left. And all I want to show you in these pictures that uh, reveal that I'm not a very good photographer is the large branching tassels and not very upright leaves. On the right side, stiff stock cycle 17, uh, greatly reduced number of tassel branches and much more upright leaves. And what we're really getting at is there are certain phenotypes that are important um, as adaptive phenotypes to help uh, corn plants tolerate high plant density. One of them is anthesis silking interval. The plants need to silk um, soon enough with respect to pollen shed so that there's pollen load to actually uh, produce full kernel set. And the other one is, is I've boiled this down and just called it improved light penetration because there's not a great deal of agreement among physiologists as to why these traits are important or, or why even light penetration is important. So there are about three hypotheses that come into play here. Uh, one with respect to tassel branches, that smaller tassels are important because uh, it takes less energy to produce a small tassel. So another hypothesis is that upright leaves and small tassels are important to get more light penetrating deeper into the canopy and produce more photosynthesis. The third hypothesis is that uh, the canopy architecture is important to get more light into the canopy just to keep the leaves alive so the plant can remobilize nitrogen. Now, which hypothesis is correct? I don't know. Uh, there might be something to all three of them. So I, I've just simplified this uh, and say, OK, so improved light penetration seems to be important. So if we look at improvement in anthesis silking interval, and I'm just going to look at the populations per se. We saw a great yield improvement in population crosses, not so much yield improvement in the populations per se, but if we look at the adaptive phenotypes, 
we really see improvement in these phenotypes in the populations per se, when we've been selecting on test crosses. And uh, BSSS, the cycle zeros at the very top, has the longest silk delay, and it also increases silk delay as we go to higher plant density. Cycle 17 is way at the bottom, and from 3.5 to 7.5 plants per meter, square, per meter squared, uh, its silking anthesis interval does not change. It silks about a half a day ahead of pollen shed. If we look at tassel branch number, and this is a little bit surprising even to me when I analyze the data, that in the populations per se, we've seen a very consistent drop in tassel branch number across cycles. And this is across breeders and programs, and I think in later cycles of, of the reciprocal, way over at the right, I don't think we're looking at tassel branch number very much at all in the nurseries anymore. If anything, we're looking for more branches so we can make pollinations, and yet that tassel branch number just keeps consistently going down, suggesting there's really something physiologically going on here, regardless of what your favorite hypothesis is. Leaf angle uh, has mostly decreased, and this is measures, measured in angles from the vertical, so that a lower angle means more upright leaves, except in the BS13HI program, where leaf angle is getting less vertical. But at the same time in that HI program, the leaves are getting smaller. So there are different mechanisms to get more light into the canopy. And, and that's one of the things that we can learn from these programs, is there's not one ideotype necessarily. So I want to come back to this slide and look at grain yield. The, the adaptive phenotype responses were really clear in the populations per se, but grain yield was not so clear. And what I would propose is going on here is that if we look at high plant density, we really see the adaptation to high plant density. If we look at low plant density, what we see in the advanced cycles is inbreeding depression due to genetic drift. And uh, genomic analysis is going to help us out with that. So I, I do have a little bit of, uh, of uh, genomic analysis in this, so I'm not a complete outlier today. Um, Dr. Mike McMullen at the, at, uh, with ARS in, in Missouri contacted me a couple years ago and said, I'm really interested in heterosis, and I think this reciprocal program would be really interesting. Can I do some genotyping? And I said, well, I'm not going to get it done anytime sooner, so have at it. So I sent him every fourth cycle of selection, and uh, he, he grew... Uh, some seedlings and, and uh, looked at 36 individuals per cycle, most of the founders for about 40,000 SNPs, and had a really smart postdoc in his lab by the name of Justin Gerke that did all the, the heavy lifting on this. I just kifed his slides from him. And uh, what we see as we look across cycles, this is the, uh, a plot of the first two principal components of uh, cycles 0, 4, 8, 12, and 16. And what we see is a very clear genomic evidence that these two populations, which are under reciprocal selection, we're selecting uh, within each population for performance of crosses between the population. We see these populations being uh, apparently driven apart. We also see some divergence already in cycle zero. And just to explain that, the, uh, the founder, the, the progenitors here are projected onto these components based on the PCAs estimated from the cycles, the progenitors themselves weren't really diverged when these programs began. So stiff stock and corn borer cycle zero were genomically very similar. Uh, but stiff stock cycle zero diverged quite a bit from, his from its founders, and we don't know if that is population development or population 
maintenance, and there's probably no way to figure that out. Um, so I mentioned inbreeding depression and genetic drift, and, and Justin did a really nice job of simulating recurrent selection and asking what is our expected drop in heterozygosity in these programs from pure genetic drift. And that expectation is represented by the black bars and sort of the gray shading on here. And the red lines on this plot are the observed heterozygosity in these two populations. And what I'd like to point out is that almost all of the loss in heterozygosity is pure genetic drift. And uh, so it, it shows us that genetic drift is a very powerful force. And so just to tie into the, the rest of the genomic selection theme, today and, um, and to look at some of the association mapping work that, that we see going on in maize that has identified lots and lots of genes with small effect, uh, one has to ask here, are we losing, um, are we fixing things at random, lots of little genes with small effect here due to genetic drift? Well, I mentioned that I think in the populations per se, we are seeing inbreeding depression, which suggests that is probably the case, although we have a problem in dealing with that that I'll talk about next. And that has to do with linkage disequilibrium. And uh, we see here a region on chromosome 9 in which Justin has plotted the observed heterozygosity um, of, at individual SNP loci uh, versus physical distance on chromosome 9. The red dots are areas of low recombination, yellow dots areas of high recombination. And what happened is we see that variation in a gigantic region on chromosome 9 simply crashed between cycles 4 and 8. And we had a great big region um, become rapidly fixed. And uh, th this is an area that I think, in, in addition to, to estimating breeding values, that uh, I have a great interest of trying to incorporate into uh, genomic selection in some way. No idea how to go about it, but um, looking, looking for recombination and trying to, to ask the question, uh, are we really losing a lot of variation simply because of this, this linkage problem, if you will? So I'm going to, uh, okay, I want to review what we've learned from genomic analysis. It certainly suggests that genetic drift, I think this particular analysis shows very clearly just how powerful a force genetic drift can be in, in selection. And secondly, I think it suggests that we can have some fixation rapidly of some very large regions in these programs. So I want to spend the rest of the time talking about dominance and drift and linkage disequilibrium. And these are some results from a selection uh, program from a dissertation uh, uh, that Clint of, uh, from Clint Turnbull. And Clint is in the audience somewhere here today, I think. Um, and this is, these are selection responses from the S2 progeny recurrent selection program that has gone on a long time in Ames. And we've convincingly demonstrated that S2 progeny selection doesn't work. And that's shown by the top, uh, the solid line near the top of this plot that shows the response and population performance from S2 progeny selection. It's basically flat. Select on inbred line performance, we don't improve the population per se. The dotted line and the dashed line near the bottom are improvement in inbred performance. And if we select on inbred performance, we improved inbred performance. 
Well, within the same population, the BS13 population, we've also done test cross performance. And so we have test cross performance and inbred line performance in the same population. We can compare the two. And I compared the two uh, programs on the basis of test cross performance to the same tester used in the test cross program. And in fact, the test cross selection did improve test cross performance. The S2 progeny recurrent selection did absolutely nothing, minus 0.02 megagrams per hectare per cycle, which is not significant uh, for uh, test cross performance. And, and so I'm just describing this effect with grain yield in corn that the selection response for grain yield depends on inbreeding level. We get response at the inbreeding level at which we select. And so in this way, I'll say something that some in the audience might not agree with. Heterosis is our enemy uh, because it just complicates things. It really does. Um, and so now I need to do a very brief review of some, some basic quantitative genetics. And, and, and not so much because I think I need to review this, but I just want to make sure we're all on the same page as far as terminology and parameters. And so I'm going to be talking about dominance and the degree of dominance, D, is, uh, is a me relative measure of the value of a heterozygote relative to the homozygotes. D equals 0 is a completely additive trait. D equals 1, complete dominance. Anything over D equals 1 being overdominance. And the real significance of this comes in with the concept of pseudo-overdominance, which we see a lot of in maize. And I've plotted two loci over on the left where I've, I've plotted their actual values versus genotype, but I've plotted them backwards. So I've got the favorable allele at the B locus, the favorable genotype on one side for the B locus, favorable genotype on the other side for the A locus. If I add the two together and I make the assumption that the A alleles and B alleles are in repulsion phase linkage, strong repulsion phase linkage so that predominantly in the population I have three genotypes. I have homozygotes that carry the favorable allele at only one locus or I have the double heterozygote. The actual degree of dominance at that haplotype level is overdominance. But at the single locus level we have simple dominance. And the reason I am bringing this up is because um, this is uh, the subject of some historical uh, research going way back. And I'm going to use degree of dominance estimates to, to, to signify evidence of linkage disequilibrium. Normally, it's sort of the other way around. Uh, the degree of dominance can be estimated in populations. And in, in fact, what happens is the degree of dominance reflects the degree of dominance observed at haplotype level, not gene level in these studies. And if we go into populations random mate, we remove this uh, bias due to linkage. And so it's appropriate that I show the, uh, the seminal work on this done by Charlie Gardner here at Nebraska, um, in which he took an F2 population derived from the, these two inbred lines, M14 and 187-2, measured degree of dominance in the F2 population, and found evidence for overdominance of genes contributing to grain yield. And following random mating, it appeared that the average degree of dominance for most genes contributing to grain yield was less than complete dominance. So I'm going to turn that backwards. And I'm going to say if I find uh, an average degree of dominance greater than 1, it probably means that there's strong linkage disequilibrium in the population. Because 
Th th this result, we have not found much evidence in, in maize of this, this effect not being the case. So we've estimated degree of dominance uh, in BS13SC0 and in BSCB1RC13, and Brandon Wardeen is also in the audience today. And sure enough, we find lots of overdominance in advanced cycles, um, which suggests to me that there's a lot of strong linkage disequilibrium. Another indicator of linkage disequilibrium is uh, the increase in the dominance to additive ratio. It's not an exact estimator of degree of dominance, but it's suggestive of linkage disequilibrium. And if we look in the corn borer population across cycles of selection, we see an, a consistent increase in that ratio. So I mentioned sort of at the beginning of the talk, just so it sounds like there's something recent in this talk, that uh, for a long time we didn't have quantitative genetic models that would accurately predict uh, the outcome of inbred progeny recurrent selection. And I think that's finally sort of ironed out. And, and, and all the work that was done in the 70s and 80s in which a number of authors suggested that inbred progeny recurrent selection was by far predicted to be the best method. Um, we now have full theory that suggests that's not the case. And so we predicted response to selection in these populations. And we predicted response if we selected on candidates at different inbreeding levels. And then we asked, what's the expected response in individuals that are non-inbred or partially inbred or a little more inbred? And what we find out, if we put the inbreeding coefficient on the x-axis of the response unit, so I'm predicting what's going to be the, the, the response or the, the gain from selection uh, in non-inbred individuals versus inbred individuals on the x-axis, and I'm looking at three methods of selection, half-sib, uh, where I'm selecting among non-inbred candidates, S1, where I'm selecting among S1 lines, and S2, where we select among lines with an inbreeding coefficient of 0.75, what we find is fairly clearly that we get what we select for. Uh, for improving non-inbred population performance, we should select among non-inbred individuals. And for, for, for improving inbred performance, we should Im select among inbreds. So in the seed industry, if we want high-yielding hybrids and we want to cut the cost of seed production, we need to test both inbreds and hybrids. So as I say, heterosis can be your enemy. Um, I also mentioned early on in the talk, I think grain yield is really different. And it was somewhat surprising to me to look at plant height, also a phenotype in corn that is greatly subject to dominance in inbreeding depression. We look at these predicted responses. And in, in both populations, in fact, the differences among methods in inbreeding levels is not all that great with respect to plant height. Um, which was rather really interesting to me. And as I said, I think grain yield is different. So I'd like to talk about some quantitative genetic uh, parameters here that really underline that fact that grain yield is a complex trait and really is unique, presents a lot of unique challenges. So there are three parameters. I have the ratio of additive genetic variance to dominance variance, or the ratio of the variance that's passed on to offspring uh, versus the variance not passed to offspring, the average degree of dominance, and then the correlation between inbred value and the value of half-sib families derived from a set of inbreds. Well, first of all, looking at the ratio of additive to dominance variance for grain yield in the uh, BS13 population represented by SS and the corn borer population at cycle 
13 of the reciprocal. Um, additive and dominance variants are roughly equal, whereas for every other trait, we have uh, probably two to four times as much additive genetic variance. So yield is really a distinct and complex trait. Degree of dominance, we seem to have the highest degree of dominance for uh, grain yield, with the exception of mid days to mid silk in the stock population. But we also view that with a little caution because we have four times the additive genetic variance. So I'm not sure we really care that the little bit of dominance variance is, is acting like uh, pseudo-overdominance. When we look at the correlation between inbred and outbred progeny for grain yield, it's miserable. If we take a correlation of 0.34, square that to an R-squared value to ask how well inbred performance predicts outbred performance, we're talking about 16% or less of the variation. Whereas for every other trait, and surprisingly, again, including plant height, we really have a pretty good correlation between inbred and outbred performance. So uh, grain yield is a different and complex trait. And we all know that. I think every plant breeder knows that. But it's nice to see some that the, the quantitative genetics uh, model here makes that so painfully clear. Okay, that, that, that's, uh, it's about time to wrap up now. And so I just want to review. And what I think that this particular set of recurrent selection programs demonstrates very clearly is that selection for grain yield really gave us adaptation to high plant density. And I think it's worth also commenting that um, we didn't, haven't measured any other components of the environment that uh, Dr. Keyshaw talked about. I mean, we've got nitrogen response, we've got water response. And, and so it really underlines the fact, uh, the importance of the environment. We can regard plant density in some ways as an environment. We, we change the, the environment of an individual plant by uh, giving it neighbors. Lesson two, just to review, is that selection for grain yield reduces the response for grain yield only at the same level of inbreeding as selection candidates. And uh, I think it's only fa fairly recently that quantitative genetic theory has caught up to actually predict these results. And I think when we really look at those quantitative genetic models, what we see is that, that grain yield seems to be a very unique phenotype in these populations. And when we think about uh, um, genomic selection and the use of genomic technologies, um, with these populations and in, in plant breeding, uh, given the complexity of grain yield, I, I, I begin to wonder uh, I, that uh, if some of these genomic technologies aren't going to make measuring some of these adaptive phenotypes and the, the precision phenotyping of the phenotypes that contribute to yield a whole lot more important than perhaps they have been. Um, I think it, it may aid in getting really good genomic uh, prediction models. And I think as a general conclusion, I think these results really uh, brought out to me as I summarized uh, data from several different studies just how important linkage disequilibrium has become in these populations. And it seems to increase over time. And I wouldn't be surprised to find that linkage is important in commercial germplasm. And as Dr. Kishol pointed out, we can look, you know, you guys can look at the pioneer pedigrees and see sort of important recombinations that seem to contribute to important advances. And I was going to put in the slides, and I didn't, and I guess I should have, that, that linkage disequilibrium could be a really important barrier to selection response. And I think 
Um, you know, Dr. Kishol talked about it as an opportunity to have these recombinations that then give rise to important advances, but the other way to look at that is the linkage disequilibrium is holding you back and, uh, and, and may be an important barrier. Um, so one kind of practical implication, um, summarizing all of this information uh, on this particular program kind of got me thinking again about this idea of inbred progeny selection that those of us in, in the academic uh, corn breeding world just can't seem to get over. And uh, for grain yield, it, it really doesn't work, but it, it sort of got me thinking that good grief for about any other trait, we really ought to be thinking about it. And if I was a, a commercial breeder and I, I look looking at results like this, I would certainly be thinking about measuring things in inbred background and, and seeing just how well they correlate to the to hybrid background and to test crosses if, if I wasn't uh, looking at those things in an inbred background already because I, th these data are a little bit scary and, and suggest to me that, that uh, selecting on some of these traits in an inbred background might be uh, more possible than I would have, personally I would have thought, but maybe I just carry too much baggage. Um, and I think it also highlights the importance of physiological adaptation. And I mentioned association studies here. Um, one of the, the roadblocks I have, and maybe this is why I don't have any genomic selection or association uh, data to present today, is I think about the importance of these programs in producing something that is quasi-commercially relevant and then I look at the importance of the physiological adaptation, the importance of the linkage disequilibrium, and the issues that these create for using some of the modern technologies. And, and I'm a little bit uh, uh, stuck in, in the, the paralysis of analysis here at, at the moment. But it, it's certainly something to think about. And I guess this is the real reason I wanted to give a talk like this, is... is uh, Looking at the summary that Jim Coors did, um, and as I reread this just a couple days ago, it's just far better than I remembered it. Um, 128 replicate experiments that we've done in the public sector. And I, I think it would be uh, a really neat exercise if uh, we could motivate the, uh, the folks of us who work in corn in the, in the public sector to get together and start looking at these experiments collectively and ask, are we selecting at the same regions across programs? Uh, what are the common physiological mechanisms and how do physiological mechanisms vary among programs? I think this is a potentially very useful resource and, and the rest of the speakers are going to talk about all the great tools we have to analyze these things the right way now. So, and, and finally, uh, you know, there may be some um, real commercial potential here. We may fish something out here that might complement commercial germplasm if we really, really try and have the tools to go in and start fishing for specific haplotypes. So I'd like to acknowledge a whole bunch of people um, that have been involved in this work. Uh, Kendall Lamke and Alan Knapp in uh, particular at Iowa State have had a lot to do with the genetics and the physiology here. A number of graduate students Brandon uh, Wardeen, Clint Turnbull, Brent Brecky, Yun Sup So, Steve Eichenberger, and then some of our technical staff, and Justin Gerke at Mike McMullen at Missouri for doing all the really hard work and letting me uh, use their slides. And certainly all the folks um, in Ames that have contributed to the 80 years of work that went into this. 
that I think give us some resources today that uh, I hope we can make, make some better use out of. And uh, certainly I also mentioned, the one person I'll mention by name is George Sprague for having the foresight to put together the stiff stock population. And I would gladly take uh, any questions or comments at this time. Thank you. In the front row, Dr. Specht. Well, I think uh, by looking at the yield response as a, an adaptation response to high plant yield, you remove that denominator, if you will, or you, you reparameterize it. And I think, I think that's exactly uh, a great way to look at this, that, that uh, um, so many crops, plants can, can uh, be acclimated to their environment. Wheat, and soybeans can branch, can tiller, and corn can't do that. Uh, corn, you've got a fixed stock, and so the, that denominator is just all that much more important in corn. We've taken advantage of it, but like heterosis, it can also be your enemy. Um, if we don't establish a stand in the spring uh, with good practices, uh, we're not going to get good yield because the plant can't compensate. Jean-Luc? Right. I think that's a great idea, and um, I've been thinking a little bit. I'm, I'm not sure if it's it's just looking across all the cycles or looking at uh, first and end cycle. I think the key point there is is trying to map uh, degree of dominance or or uh, yeah degree of dominance uh, in specific genomic regions. And there's some other folks out there way ahead of me on that. So um, I think we're done. Okay. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you.